Well, as I said at the start, today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent when we meditate on the two arrivals of Jesus Christ in the world, his first coming and his second coming. What we find in the Bible is that there are signs connected to both of those arrivals. There are at least three signs connected to Jesus' first coming, and we'll be looking at those in the next few weeks in a short series on the signs of his coming. But today we are going to look at the sign of Jesus' second coming, which is mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. You can see we've printed most of Matthew 24 in the service program on pages 10 and 11. That's because we'll need to refer to the surrounding verses during the sermon. But our second Bible reading is just verses 30 and 31, and I'll read those verses now. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. This is the word of the Lord. It would help me if you could leave those pages open, 10 and 11, so we can keep looking at them during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray for God to be at work among us through the preaching of his word. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Father, we want to hear Jesus' voice. Please, by your Spirit, would we hear it now through the preaching of his word? And would we then follow Jesus to the glory of his name? Amen. It may have been a long time since some of us last drove a car, being Manhattanites, most of us, but I expect most of us can at least remember the experience of seeing a sign light up on the dashboard behind the steering wheel. There's the sign that shows that someone doesn't have their seatbelt on, there's the sign for low fuel, the sign for low oil. And then very occasionally, perhaps once every two or three years, a dashboard sign will come on that you've never seen before, and you don't know what it's telling you. What does that little red symbol mean? If you're anything like me, you'll assume it means overheated engine, this car is about to explode. And you'll be worrying about that for the whole of the rest of the journey. But despite the anxiety that dashboard signs can sometimes cause, they are useful. It's useful to have advanced information, advanced warning. In the natural world as well, there are signs of changing weather that can help farmers or travelers. Signs can be very useful, and that's why Jesus' disciples ask him in verse 3, so that's on page 10 in the service program, they ask Jesus in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of your coming? 
Jesus has just told them in verse 2 that the temple is going to be totally and utterly destroyed. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That would have horrified the disciples. They were Jewish. The temple in Jerusalem was their pride and joy. It looks like they're starting to realise, judging by their question in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming? It looks like they're starting to realise that Jesus isn't going to gain power right away. From their point of view, Jesus would never let the temple be destroyed if he was in power. That explains why they ask Jesus about the sign of his coming. If Jesus isn't gaining power now but later, they think to themselves, they want to know what the sign will be that at last the time has come for him to be revealed as king. They were probably imagining a massive battle between the Jewish people and the Roman invaders, a battle leading to the destruction of the temple. And so you can see why they would want to know what the signal would be. The signal for them to gather together for the big announcement that Jesus is king. Now that question, what will be the sign of your coming, isn't the only question the disciples ask in verse 3. They raise other issues as well. Jesus deals with those other issues first, and he only gets onto the subject of the sign of his coming in verse 30, over on page 11, where he says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite ways of talking about himself. So Jesus is saying, there will be a sign of his coming. The disciples are right to expect a sign of his coming. And since signs are useful, especially God-given signs, we should pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying there in verse 30, when there's a warning sign on the card dashboard that we don't understand, that we don't recognize. It actually is wise to look it up in the driver's manual the next time you stop to fill up the gas tank. In a similar way, we should seek to get to the bottom of the sign Jesus speaks of in verse 30. And we have a driver's manual that will help us do that, the rest of the Bible, and in particular the verses surrounding verse 30 in Matthew 24. We're going to bring three simple questions to verse 30. When, what, and how? First question is when. When will this sign come? In verse 30, Jesus identifies a particular moment. At that time, he says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. He has a particular time in view, but when? It must be the time mentioned in the previous verse, verse 29. If we take verses 29 and 30 together, Jesus is saying that the sign of the Son of Man will appear immediately after the distress of those days. Verse 29 tells you when verse 30 will happen. Verse 29 tells you when verse 30 will happen. The trouble is, it is not obvious at first glance which distressing days are in view. There are two options. Looking at Matthew chapter 24, there are two options. Back in verse 21, Jesus says, then there will be great distress. And that whole long paragraph, verses 15 through 25, 
is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. If those very distressing days are the ones Jesus is talking about in verse 29, that would mean the sign of his coming was due soon after Jerusalem was destroyed in the first century. But there is an alternative possibility, a second option. The distress word is also found earlier in the passage in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, which could be translated distress. It's the same word in the original language. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In that paragraph, verses 9 through 14, Jesus is talking about the whole time period about to begin after his ascension into heaven. Take a look, please, at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's also a distressing time period because the distress word is there in verse 9, as we've seen, and also because the whole time period calls for endurance, according to verse 13. We could call this time period the gospel proclamation time period. We are in it at the moment. And as we've just heard from verse 14, it's the time period that stretches all the way to the end of the world. If that's the time in view, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus would be saying that the sign of the Son of Man will appear right after that gospel proclamation time period, as soon as it's complete. In other words, when the gospel proclamation time period finishes, when the end of this world comes, the sign will appear. Well, let me sum up what we've got so far, and you'll be relieved to hear that was the most complicated part of this morning's sermon. Let me sum up what we've got so far. We're trying to understand when the sign of the Son of Man will appear when it will appear, and we've seen that Jesus could mean right after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, first option, or he could mean right after the end of this current world, second option. There's more information to come later in the sermon that will help us choose between those two options, and uh, we will choose one of those options. So let's now move on to our next question about the sign of the Son of Man. What? What is this sign? What will it look like? In 2004, a 10-year-old girl named Tilly Smith, who was on a family beach vacation in Thailand, saw waves coming in without being sucked back. She saw that the surface of the sea had a strange fizzing effect and she noticed a log on the surface of the sea spinning round and round. Two weeks earlier, she'd seen a video in a geography class that identified all those three things as signs of an incoming tsunami. Tilly immediately took action. She told her parents, who quickly passed the message on to a lifeguard. The lifeguard agreed with Tilly the whole beach was safely evacuated before the tsunami 
swept in that terrible Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004. The whole beach was safely evacuated. Knowing and seeing a sign can be the difference between life and death. In verse 3, when the disciples say, what will be the sign of your coming? They're saying, tell us what to look out for, what the sign will be, so that we recognize it and take appropriate action. And in verse 30, Jesus gives them a direct answer to that question. Let's look down again, please, to verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see, what are they going to see? The Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The sign of the Son of Man will be the Son of Man. The sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man himself, the Lord Jesus. You might be thinking, mm, that's not a sign, that's the thing itself, the person himself, not really a sign. And I think Jesus himself would agree with you about that. The disciples asked that sign question back in verse 3, and here in verse 30, Jesus uses the same language they used, which shows them he was listening, it shows them he heard their question. But the answer he gives flips the script. His answer, along with all the other information in this passage, reveals that the sign of the Son of Man won't be an advance warning kind of signal. No, the sign of the Son of Man will be the Son of Man himself coming. Now, before we move on from this what question, what is the sign? There's something else we need to notice about the future appearing of the Son of Man in the sky. And that is that everyone will see it. Somehow everyone in the world will see it when it happens. Jesus has already made that part clear a little earlier. Let's look down to verse 26 on page 10 and I'll read from there. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In those verses, Jesus categorically rejects the idea that his coming will be secretive. That it will be the kind of arrival that gets people saying, Psst, if you want to see Jesus, he's over there. If you want to see Jesus, he's in Parkersburg, West Virginia. But be careful who you tell. No, no. All of those, he's over here, he's over there, claims can be dismissed. As Jesus says in verse 27, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Everyone will see it. In verse 28, there's a memorable riddle that seems to be another way of saying the same thing. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather, Jesus says. We know from the Gospels that Jesus loves observing things in nature. And the observation here is that when an animal drops dead, vultures will find it. Vultures 
never have a difficulty with carcass location. They somehow manage to show up where the carcass is. In the novel I've been reading, some 19th century cowboys lose track of a wounded Texas bull and uh, they worry that it might have died, but they come to the conclusion that it can't have died because they don't see any vultures hovering in the sky. No vultures circling. The bull must still be alive. Vultures never have a carcass location problem. So in verse 28, Jesus is saying that no one will have a problem locating him when he appears. He's not saying he'll be a corpse. He's not saying people are vultures. He's just saying no one will have a problem locating him when he comes. He's saying the same thing he said in verse 27 in a different way, a wonderfully memorable way. Well, earlier when we were looking at verses 29 and 30, we saw there were two options for the timing of the sign of the Son of Man. We saw that you could make a case that it was supposed to come immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, or you could make a case for it coming immediately after the gospel proclamation time period we're currently in. But what we've seen just now about the nature of the sign settles that question. The sign of Jesus coming hasn't yet appeared because he hasn't yet come. His arrival hasn't yet been seen like lightning flashing in the east is seen all the way over in the west. So the answer to the when question must be the end of history, the end of this world in its current form. That's when the sign will be seen. That's when Jesus himself will be seen on the last day. And we don't know when that day will come precisely because no one knows when that day will come. Even Jesus doesn't know when that day will come. As he says in verse 36 on page 11, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We thought about when. We thought about what. Let's now press on to the third and final question, how? How should we respond? How should we ourselves respond to what Jesus says about the sign of his coming. How should we apply this Bible passage to our lives? The first application is to believe the gospel, to believe the good news about Jesus. Take another look, please, at verse 14, where Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom. In brief, the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that God's own kingdom, which goes on forever, has an open door, a wide open door that anyone can go through. Jesus opened it himself through his life, death and resurrection. He made it possible for us to live forever with the God who loves us in the new heavens and the new earth. Without Jesus, we cannot live in fellowship 
with our loving Creator God because of His blazing moral purity. He cannot turn a blind eye to evil, to wrongdoing. And there's a lot of evil in our lives, so much wrongdoing. But when we put our trust in Jesus, our wrongdoing that we are responsible for is taken from our own account and put into Jesus' account, as it were, and he receives the punishment for it. He was punished at the cross where he died so that anyone who trusts in him would be freed from sin and guilt and death and condemnation because all those things were piled upon him instead of us. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, please do so without delay. As the old song says, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. It's important to say there is no other way back to God. There's no other way into his everlasting kingdom. The only way is through Jesus, through faith in him. As Jesus himself says in John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. That gospel proclamation mentioned in verse 14 has now been underway for nearly 2,000 years. Many people right across the world have believed the good news about Jesus. But in this passage, Matthew 24, Jesus shows that he knew there would be rejecters as well as believers. He knew many people would reject the good news. We've already looked at verse 9 where he tells his disciples, you will be hated. And in verse 30, the sign verse, he says, all the nations of the earth will mourn. That word mourn could be translated wail. All the nations will wail because they've rejected Jesus. Yes, many have believed in him from every nationality, praise God. But the normal national response is rejection. Those who haven't believed the good news, those who haven't received Jesus as king over their lives, will wail when he returns because they'll be cut off from God forever. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says in verse 37. Noah and his family were saved. The rest of the people were swept away in judgment and destruction. Please believe the good news, this good news, before it's too late. Don't be someone who's always putting off your own salvation, postponing it and postponing it and postponing it until it's too late. Come to God today through Jesus. Give him your life. He can be trusted with it. He's a loving God. He sent his son Jesus because he loved the people of the world, including you. You can give him your life very confidently because of his love. 
many of us here today have already believed the gospel in the past. It might have been years ago. Jesus says to us, be ready. Verse 44, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Earlier in that paragraph in verse 42, Jesus puts it differently. He says, stay awake. The point is, we can't put our Christian faith in the bank and then move on to other things. We can't look back on our past faith and say to ourselves, well, that made me right with God. Now I can do as I please. No, stay awake, Jesus says. Be ready. Faith, saving faith, is a lively, active thing. It's true that when we first believed, we were made right with God then. Hallelujah. But if that past faith was the real thing, it will still be active now. It will be stirring you up to live life God's way, seeking to please him, serving him, obeying his commands, fulfilling all the responsibilities he's given you. We're saved to serve. We're saved into a life of serving God, conscious that Jesus could return at any time. Remember that 10-year-old girl, Tilly Smith, who saved many lives from the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami on that beach. It's estimated there were 100 people on that beach at the time. She was ready. Two weeks beforehand, she'd learned about the signs of an approaching tsunami in a geography lesson. She retained that information. She was ready to take action. In a similar way, we need to be ready. Jesus could return at any time and we need to stay awake. It's been said that the best evidence of past conversion is present convertedness. The best evidence of past conversion is present convertedness. Living life God's way, seeking to please him, obeying his commands, fulfilling your God-given responsibilities, present convertedness. Therefore, you also must be ready, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of an open door into your everlasting kingdom. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who opened that door for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Father, if there are any here who have not yet believed that good news and put their trust in Jesus and begun following him, we pray Father, that they would think very seriously about these things. We pray you would be merciful. And we ask, Heavenly Father, for those of us who have believed the gospel in the past, please keep us ready, keep us awake. Help us to be conscious that Jesus could return at any time Help us to be conscious that we have been saved to serve you. 
And we pray you would empower our service by your Spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen.